as much as we beat up the state and we sit here and maybe we're putting ourselves on a pedestal as if we are the enlightened libertarian philosophers saying, oh, we need to transcend statism and all that. I think it's something that kind of lives in all of us. And the real enlightenment process is maybe arming yourself with that knowledge and keeping that egoic tendency in check. I grow little of the food I eat and of the little I do grow, I do not breed or perfect the seeds. I do not make any of my own clothing. I speak a language I did not invent or refine. I did not discover the mathematics I use. I am protected by freedoms and laws I did not conceive of or legislate and do not enforce or adjudicate. I am moved by music I did not create myself. When I needed medical attention, I was helpless to help myself survive. I did not invent the transistor, the microprocessor, object-oriented programming, or most of the technology I work with. I love and admire my species, living and dead, and am totally dependent on them for my life and well-being. Wow. Beautiful. One of the biggest capitalists in the world just wrote one of the most beautiful poems to how connected and interlinked we are that I've ever read. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Anish Carve, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Good to see you, Robert. It's good to see you again. Uh, we are nearing the end of Soul's work that we've been going through, titled Discrimination and Disparities. And this last chapter is quite a doozy. Um, as we were just saying offline, he really hits 
a lot of the big ideas uh, that the work of people like Hayek, the work of people like Taleb, um, concepts that they unpack in their own writing, uh, Soul has done in a very interesting and elaborate way in his in his own right. So I think to get started here, I'll just read an excerpt, and I'm starting on page 186 in the book. Soul writes, "In a sense, life is a relay race." and each of us receives the baton at a time and place over which we have no control. Our parents, our birth order, our country, and our surrounding culture have already been predetermined for us. Some of the prerequisites for achievement can be affected later by individual choices or social policies, but by no means 100% in most cases, much less in all cases. No human being and no human institution has either sufficient knowledge or sufficient power for that. More important, we have zero control over the past, and, and as was said long ago, we do not live in the past, but the past in us. And then the, the next section is titled, you know, Equality, Meanings, and Prospects. So he's basically going to eviscerate the entire idea of equality, right? There, it's a very romantic notion. It's thrown around by political rhetoricians as some goal or some um, ideal state towards which we should be moving. And I think Sol just does a brilliant job of elaborating why equality, and it's something, this is something we've revisited a lot in the series, but equality does not exist anywhere in human affairs or in nature more broadly. Um, and so, yeah, I think this just sets up where he's going in this chapter. I'd love to hear your, and your thoughts on that. To run with that thought, it, it, it's that equal outcomes don't exist even when the starting conditions are totally fair, right? Mm -hmm. And the starting conditions are totally equal. And there are a bunch of really interesting examples that he gives in this book. So one is that you would suspect that people who have, and there's a study that he cites in this, that people who have an IQ over 140 would do really well in life. And what he in fact shows is that there's a very skewed outcome and just having that high IQ wasn't enough to guarantee success. And then he shows that two of the people who didn't make the 140 IQ cut in this famous study ended up getting Nobel prizes. And what this is really about is the fact that even if once we have an outcome oriented process, like the market, like the participation that we take in the extended order as individuals. Once there are multiple prerequisites for success, even if all of those prerequisites are individually distributed like a bell curve, exactly mm -hmm. as a central planner would expect, the combination of those characteristics are vastly and highly skewed. Mm. And this is the point that he makes throughout the book and why the invincible fallacy keeps showing up as, hey, wherever, the invincible fallacy being wherever there are disparate outcomes, it must be the result of discrimination. He's saying no. Just look at statistics. Look at birth order. Why is it that the first child has a net worth equal to all the other children roughly combined? Mm -hmm. Why is it that they have such different academic outcomes? And he goes, he theorizes that, well, maybe it's the undivided attention of the parent that's so valuable. And he even shows that twins have lower IQs in general and, you know, kind of suggesting this mechanism that it's about the divided attention of the parent. And all of this to say, you have individuals raised under the same roof, by the same parents, in the same cities, under similar socioeconomic conditions. Their starting positions are about as equal as any central planner could hope to make them, and yet their finishes are totally unequal. 
And what he's saying is that you can totally, in the absence of discrimination, you can have very, very disparate outcomes. Mm. And, and yeah, I the uh, I guess one thing be, before we step away from that point, this chapter, this is the final chapter in, in I think what well, one is one of his master work. And he ends it, he's like, you know, I'm an economist, maybe you're reading my book, Expecting Solutions. And he ends it with such a, br- he, he begins the end with such a brilliant, piece of higher order thinking he said the point is there are no solutions there mm-hmm. are only trade-offs mm-hmm. like and that so what soul is giving us much like what Mises is giving us when you read human action is he's trying to impart a mindset to the reader and the mindset is things are rarely as they seem there are complex hidden factors that drive disparities and outcomes and it is extraordinarily naive and harmful to assume that the only way outcomes can become equal and this is exactly what the infa- invincible fallacy does is because someone was discriminating mm-hmm. so i'll let you jump in there but like what a what a beast right like yeah and for to to give this kind of high quality thinking to the rest of the world is is really something that i think makes soul unique yeah i think you said that excellently and the idea of there being no final solution right there is no final form or or ideal state or social plan towards which we're moving, that's very empowering, right? Because it, it, it not only does it sort of rug pull the entire idea of central planning, which is just, you know, this ideology is better than that ideology. You know, someone's trying to present the final solution or the final um, totalizing central plan. It just, it, it, obl- it obliterates that entire notion, right? That what we really want are I guess, fair and equal rules of engagement, but the outcomes, obviously they have to be disparate. They have to be like, the other thing that struck me here is that, you know, equal outcomes, how, although it might sound desirable on the surface, if you actually think about it, it's not desirable at all. Why would you want equal outcomes? If you think about sports, right? If all the athletes had equal outcomes, they all had the exact same scores, the exact same stats, the exact same everything right height weight whatever like what's the point there's no point the the reason you play the game is to evaluate who's better at the game right you're looking for unequal outcomes but what is desirable in sport is or is a level playing field right rules that are universally applicable right that don't bend right it's not like one player can change the rules mid-game to make him win and cause another one to lose and i think it's the same thing that we want in in market games, right? You just want people really to have life, liberty, property, and then you want disparate outcomes because that means someone that figured out how to solve a problem better, faster, cheaper now has the incentive to sell that solution into the marketplace and we all benefit as a result. If we were all forced into the container of equal outcomes, then we wouldn't go anywhere. There'd be no innovation. There'd be no progress. There'd be no civilization. So um, I love how he just obliterates the entire thing by just saying, you know, th- there isn't really a solution here. There's just, um, I guess, what are we looking for? Like a container for the process, really. That's right. And, and the rules of the process. And and one of the key points of this chapter is the difference between process and outcome. And essentially, the conservative mindset focuses on, which is also the classical liberal, let's not get confused, mindset, focuses on uh, a process that is fair for everyone. This is law, language, money. The rule mm-hmm. of law essentially is what that boils down to. Whereas the Marxists, to be very general, and, and again, 
Marxism and capitalism are two fundamental paradigms in economics, and they underlie a lot of political tensions, political dynamics that we see. They focus on outcomes. So the, there's a vast difference between process and outcome. And I'm so glad that you brought up the sport example because Sol talks about that extensively. And we know from, from Bastia and others, things hidden versus things like things unseen versus things seen. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons that unequal economic outcomes are so difficult for people to conceptualize is that they can't see the performance. And I want to explain this. So first of all, nobody questions why LeBron James earns more money than the janitor that cleans the suit. Right. Nobody even asks that question because it's obvious because the performance is physical. Mm -hmm. But lots of people ask inane questions like, well, why does Jeff Bezos earn more money than the people who work in his factory? Mm -hmm. And I think this has to do with the fact that the facts of Bezos' success and the things that he does, a lot of his intellectual work and a lot of his unseen work. And the key point here is that e economics is a study of hidden consequences. And Sowell is asking us to think harder. And he says, okay, now, now let's keep going with this line of thinking. So if you're not going to ask the question, you know, why does LeBron James make more than the janitor? Well, he's clearly physically capable in ways that the janitor is. Now we can argue about what that multiple is. Mm -hmm. But then he says the same people who ask, you know, why doesn't a factory worker at Microsoft or at Amazon earn the same as the CEO or earn the same as Bill Gates? And they never ask themselves, they, so they ask that question all day long. They never ask themselves, how long would it take a factory floor worker in Amazon to create as much wealth as Bezos has created? Mm -hmm. They never ask that question. And so this is this complex thinking that we need to bring to bear and the audience should bring to bear when thinking about economics, right? And economics is kind of everything in this context. It's, it's really catalactics, how prices and exchange ratios, how people cooperate, how scarce resources are distributed. And so, yeah, what can we do with this with this concept of the of the unseen? And I think that's what Sol is asking us to do is like, hey, draw a bigger box. I'm going to give one more statistic and flip it back to you. And and what he says is that just because something outrages people, and this goes back to what we've called an amygdala hijack in prior episodes, just because something outrages people doesn't mean that that is most likely to be the causative factor at play. Mm. And politicians play on this syllogism all the time. And I'll give you an example. And it's happening right now in the state of California. Uh, reparations are being considered for uh, let's for African Americans. Mm -hmm. And there's something there are different numbers being thrown around, like five million dollars or a hundred thousand dollar lifetime salary. And what Sol says is, hang on, let's zoom out for a second. So first he says that there's nothing unique, although so slavery is clearly wrong. And ironically, it is the status who press on the side of slavery because they want the ability to control other people, to control their tax money, and do something which is very akin to slavery in order to produce more equal outcomes, right? What does Hayek say is that social justice is treating people unequally so that they can be more equal. It's a paradox in and of itself. So the first big box that Sol draws around that, he's like, wait a minute. He's like, every race on earth has been enslaved and has enslaved. So it is totally fallacious. And part of the reason why America, why it's so easy to show slavery as America's black eye is because so many other things about our history were good and were clean. Mm. And to believe this, you just read Frederick Douglass's What to this What to a Slave is the Fourth of July, where he completely vindicates the Constitution. And what he says is, well, people are guilty of not practicing the Constitution. Isn't that the Constitution was wrong? So the bigger box here is that don't just look at the singular injustice that the politician is trying to highlight to get to get your to pry your tax money away from you to mm -hmm. use imminent domain to claim people's property. Look at the bigger frame, the mm -hmm. bigger box around this, and that's economic thinking as a whole is 
What are the hidden consequences? What are the hidden determinants? And in this whole book, Sola has been trying to show, hey, there's all these, just because we see skewed distributions doesn't mean that where that distribution was measured, like just because we see a disproportionate number of people of a certain race or gender in the prison system, doesn't mean that the prison system is Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, probably guilty of bringing up a million different ideas there, but what can we do? How would you run with this idea of soul being someone who wants to give the reader a broader like glasses with which to see the world or maybe to take their their coke bottle glasses of sadism off and see the world as it is yeah he's doing man what's he doing here like this again getting people to higher resolution thinking that you're actually looking at the individual you're looking at a resolution of the individual rather than of classes right whites versus blacks or any of this any particular race that enslaved another one and then you're supposed to like demonize the race from now until the end of time or whatever it may be that's not reality right the the human individual races don't move as individual independent organisms it's not like white people all do one thing or the other there's white individuals doing one thing or another there's black individuals doing one thing or another so he's kind of like decomposing this rhetoric into something that's more realistic and in doing so, he gets us into the realm of praxeology, right? We start talking about preferences, trade-offs, individual valuation, et cetera. And so there is this, and he gets into this later where, you know, all of this rhetoric, whether it's from, I think he cites, you know, King Louis the Fourteenth later that says, I am the state, or yeah. it's current modern social justice warriors, right? They're basically saying the same thing, just with different languages. And what, what, they're trying to do ultimately is preempt individual decision making right there's some reason why the individual cannot make this decision for themselves therefore i as the as the, the politician or the state have some moral or even pragmatic superiority that i need to override these decisions of individuals and so he's got a passage here i'd like to read that kind of opens it that whole uh can of worms he writes in general, judging merit seems far less likely to be within our competence than judging productivity. In the economy, what we are far more likely to be competent to judge for ourselves individually is whether whatever product or service someone offers us is worth what it cost. Judging merit in the sense of the moral worth that we could credit or blame an individual for if we knew and understood all the myriad factors impinging on that particular individual's life seems beyond the realm of human knowledge. But when we are forced to decide whether to part with our own money, that is to forego other desirable uses of it in order to purchase some product or service that can concentrate our attention on demonstrable realities with less distraction by heady words or sweeping visions. So it's almost like that entire reality of trade-offs being inherent to every decision, right? Anything that you choose to do, you do that thing at the exclusive at the exclusion of all other things you could be doing, right? This is opportunity cost. Um, this, uh, what he's describing here, like when you're using money to decide whether to buy something or not, it's sort of clarifying that reality. It's where the rubber meets the road, I guess. But these heady political rhetorical visions of, you know, everyone's equal or we get reparations, like it's not, it's trying to gloss over that reality 
and deceive people fundamentally. That this passage is so rich. I had 30 or 40 ideas while you were speaking. I think that the first thing to be present to is that when we talk about productivity, we're talking about things that we can measure in the external world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's go back to Mises and human action. And, and Mises' fundamental contribution to the world is something called the economic calculation problem. And what he observed is that only a market economy can elevate subjective preferences, ordinal preferences, into objective cardinal prices. So what Sowell is saying is like, hey, let's focus on the things that we can see and understand. And this is really important. He's actually making the point long before Taleb that buying things involves sacrifice and involves skin in the game. Mm -hmm. Compare that to the desk of a central planner who rarely, if ever, pays a price for being wrong. And just go to Milton Friedman. When a government organization fails, it doesn't go out of business, it gets bigger. And that's exactly what happened. You look at any recent crisis and, you know, all the organizations that failed, you know, let's talk about, the, let's say the, the Pentagon or during 9-11, they, they didn't fail. They were like, oh, like, how did we allow the, the most powerful airports in the world to be attacked by a few commuter planes? Well, that accountability discussion never happened. It was just, hey, we need hundreds of billions of dollars more in funding. Right. And so he's saying something really, really interesting here. And, and this is the, at the core of the conservative and classical liberal mindset. There is a respect of complex systems. What does that mean? He's respecting the knowledge of individuals. And he's making a very Hayekian argument mm-hmm. and saying that the merit of those individuals is internal to them. And those individuals know for themselves what they should sacrifice, what they should buy, what they shouldn't buy. And central planners then come along and say, no, I want the power to override your decision. And uh, so I guess what he's saying is that we have to focus on areas. Merit is a cosmic concept. That's another way to think about it. Mm. And it, instead of pretending that some individuals could know what merit is, let's look at what even a chimp could understand. There are three groups over here. There's mm-hmm. one here, mm-hmm. right? And let's use that as the objective measure. And by the way, that is another fallacy that he debunks in this book is that the entire status mindset is based on the idea that some people are poor because other people are rich. The whole the economy is not a zero-sum game. Let's focus on exactly this argument. Why does, let's answer the question for once and for all, why does Bezos make more money or why did Bill Gates make more money than a, than a worker in one of his factories? Because he convinced millions of people to voluntarily give the money out of their pocket or the product. Now, we can talk about Microsoft Monopoly and this argument is imperfect in some sense, but he created more economic value, period. And mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people were lifted out of poverty because of his actions. Mm-hmm. So this is, I mean, this is really the issue. And whereas in a socialist economy where you try to run the entire economy on merit, what do you get from each uh, according to his or her abilities to each according to his or her demands? And guess what? Those are exactly the, omni- the economies that cannot economically calculate. Because right. it's just an internal transfer of goods. So this concept of merit is a, is a completely fungible balloon that yes. causes us to change the definition of merit. And, and here's the last point that I'll make here, is that merit is very deliberately a movable goalpost. And I'll explain. One of the things that Hoppe explains is that this concept of communal property or public property mm. solves the problem of ownership in name only yes because the real differences that matter are the differences in power to control and watch this by controlling the definition of merit or saying that we should have lofty things like social justice 
you don't actually do anything to improve the lives of people. Right. What actually happens is that a very small number of people use this concept of social justice to take power for themselves and for the government. And that is why, as Mises observes, the worst thing that can happen to a socialist is his friends don't get elected because they know the economy and the process doesn't work. And the only thing available at their disposal is to use their personal proximity to the actual people who have the power, not the nominal people who have the power to get what they want. Yeah, and no, brilliantly said you can't socialize property as a contradiction in terms because it, in reality, someone controls each asset, right? Someone is the decision maker of how that asset is employed and how competing interests for it are resolved. Um, and that the Hayekian argument you referenced earlier, I just wanted to mention, people should go read The Use of Knowledge in Society. It closely mirrors this last chapter, but it's just a great, another uh, essay that just demolishes the concept of central planning. Like the nature of knowledge itself is that it's diffused into individuals that have particular contextual knowledge of their their specific circumstances in specific times and specific places. It's not something that you can just pass up into a centralized body and have the decisions come back down with any degree of fidelity, right? It's 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 almost like physically impossible, basically. So it's like a, it's, it, I don't know if it's a physics argument per se, but it's definitely one of those, um, it's very potent in that, that sense, let's say. And this whole thing on merit, you know, it's, I think it's kind of dispelled and the, the old adage, one man's junk is another man's treasure. It's who is to decide for anyone else, what is meritorious and what's not, right? Just like I can't decide what for you what is right for you, right? You have a certain diet that's different than my diet. Well, what works for you is not what works for me, and that's great. We can right. each choose for ourselves. In what reality could I ever justify, like, you know, bludgeoning you over the head and saying, no, my diet is right for you? It just, it fundamentally makes no sense. Yeah, well, that's really economic form is doing that every single day and saying yes. you should eat these bugs, you shouldn't eat this meat. I right. mean, it, it's absurd. And so it's funny. It's like as as obvious as it is that it could never be justified to tell another human being what to do. People try to do it every day and they do it under the guise of we have superior knowledge, we have superior morality. Right. And I want to apology whom we both know and you've had on the show. He gives a great example of the ineptitude and impossibility of central planning, which really ties up a lot of what you were saying. And he says, for certain decisions, localized decisions, and Hayek uses the word, the man on the spot. Like mm -hmm. you're, and anybody who has been in an acute situation at work, in life, knows that you have to take action right now. Mm -hmm. And he says, Balaji makes the observation that central planning in those cases is like trying to drive a car, making decisions over email. That's right. Yeah. You see that? There's a total yep. impedance mismatch. Like, yep. I, I need to not hit this baby carriage right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't have time to email my congressman, get a fake thank you email yeah. back. And and this is exactly, and now this concept of things unseen, this concept of dispersed knowledge, that's what Hayek is saying is that a central authority cannot have all the dispersed knowledge. And if it did, it would be a very big brother panopticon type of scenario where they literally, and we're going there. I mean, well, there are some individuals who want to go there and say, well, if we just measure everything, you know, we're going we're to measure the sewer outputs, we're going to find when people are awake, right. when people are sick. And this is the central planner's fallacy, is the belief that just because they have more knowledge, they now have enough knowledge to plan society. 
And Seoul is going completely opposite direction, saying they will never have enough knowledge. Individuals, even uneducated individuals, are far better because they have skin in the game uh -huh. at making decisions for themselves and what they should do with their families and with their bodies and with their minds. And uh, this, you know, garbage in, garbage out thinking of the state has so much knowledge and such moral superiority. And by the way, any look at history will show that the state has neither of those things. And Sola gives dozens, if not hundreds of examples in this book. But the status and authoritarians are never asked to justify on what basis do you do you claim the power to preempt other people's decisions? That's right. just not even in the discussion because the discussion is framed so conveniently and people's emotions are so hijacked by, you know, whatever discussion of merits, discussion of injustice, discussion of social justice, that the state never has to logically uh, justify their arguments or, again, justify their moral supremacy or their informational supremacy in order right. to be able to make this decision. Yeah, it's a great point. And, um, you know, just to contrast this, you know, again, this idea of one centralized body somehow knowing what what is meritorious and what's not for others, such that they've justified preempting of individual decision-making. The core assumption in Austrian economics is that you can't do that, right? The only, the only th well, I guess these are kind of two core assumptions. Basically, man prefers more satisfaction to less satisfaction, and man prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction. Right? That's that's kind of all you can say about the process of valuation. You can't say man prefers apples to oranges, for instance. Right? Like, well, one guy might prefer apples, one guy might prefer oranges. That's an individual preference. But you could say the guy that prefers apples would prefer more apples than less. You know, in a and of course this comes down to. Um, the ordinal preferences, right? Like the guy might want a certain amount of apples, then he might want something else. What's it called? The diminishing utility, marginal utility of value. Yeah, marginal utility, exactly. Yeah. So each apple you gives you less satisfaction. Or one, exactly. Exactly. So that's, I mean, that's like, it, again, it's more realistic. It's like saying, here's what people actually want. Here's what we can actually say about merit across all people. And that's the, the applied framework rather than there's some pedestal that the statist politician inhabits that they can dole down from on high what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. And that conversation's never had, to your point. Like, no one ever, like, I don't know why. Why do we not, why is the burden of proof not on the statist to to support that that elevated position? I think it has everything to do with the framing of the conversation. And, and that's what's old. Let's go back, you know, things seen and things unseen. So it was like, hey, zoom out for a second. And you know, that's really interesting because that's not the same as higher resolution. Higher resolution implies sometimes higher resolution in this context is actually zooming out a lot. Mm. And what? let me just jump through one of the ways like that Soul frames the debate and how we can start to see through. So it says, in many cases, educators verbally transmute higher capabilities into privilege. Through the magic of words and in the name of social justice, such educators oppose using the schools to facilitate the development of special individual abilities that can benefit society as a whole. They make society poorer, whether they realize it or not, by destroying the abilities of individuals self-sort, because that can cause an expansion of educational disparities and the economic disparities that follow. This is the last piece. Many of those with this social vision not only proceed as if society is a zero-sum process in which benefits to one segment necessarily come at the expense of other segments, they also often ignore, dismiss, or demonize other ways of looking at the situation. And I know better than to argue with anybody on Twitter, but this is exactly how the certain now, I mean, this is a whole discussion that math is discriminatory. 
math math is racist and it's racist. <laughs> now I have to laugh, like, but so and you know there there are arguments to be understood in that line of reasoning. But uh, this is again the pillar society being law, language, and money. When you have a single contradiction in any one of those pillars, the entire edifice collapses. And what I want to say, and Mises makes this point, he's like, socialism is not a progressive philosophy. It is a regressive and destructive philosophy that leads to the downfall of civilization. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are fighting hard to maintain, let's just say crisp definitions, number one, and the autonomy of the individual are very much fighting for what everybody wants, but not everybody agrees on how we can get, and that is order and prosperity. Yes. Right. And we're fighting really hard that math doesn't go away, that logic doesn't go away. And, you know, again, in the great mind of Mises, one of only Mises could figure out things like this, but he says one of the great errors of Marxism is polylogism, is that different people think differently. Mm. And human action completely flies. The, and that's always what you'll hear is that, well, we can't impose our values on these other people. Well, then don't centrally plan. Mm -hmm. It's ironic. Right. The same people who are claiming for, hey, we should be able to override everyone's decisions are saying, well, different people think differently. And Mises says all we can say is that humans take action, humans have goals, and they do various things to satisfy us and to achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. uh, last thing I'll say, uh, let me let me close off with the surrogate decision making, and, and like, we can move on to languages. I think was a really cool part of this this chapter. Among the many dangers of surrogate decision making, what a great characterization of central planning is that such decision makers cannot know the situation of millions of other people as well as those people know their own situations which may not conform to the vision prevailing among the surrogates. Moreover, surrogate decision makers often pay no price for being wrong, no matter how wrong or catastrophic the consequences for those whose decisions they have preempted. Given the fallibility of all human beings, the chastening effect of facing the consequences of one decisions can be dispensed with only at great peril. And this is skin in the game, in a nutshell. Skin in the game. Yeah. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, The Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version, because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> Man, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. 
And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. And there's no back pressure. There should be back pressure on central planners. What's the penalty? Like, were the people who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, maybe that's a very extreme example, were they ever penalized? Were the people who raised the minimum wage and put thousands or millions of black teens out of work ever penalized? No, they were probably promoted. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's this fundamental somewhat intuitive reality that if you as a decision maker or an actor a person taking action if you are divorced from the consequences of your actions then there's a problem right because you can make decisions that hurt other people that don't affect you therefore you're not going to stop necessarily you don't have an incentive to change your course of action per se because you're not incurring the consequences of your actions and that's all we're trying to say here, right? It's like individuals should bear the cost, rewards, and risk of their actions. And that's what allows society to self-sort in an optimal way. And that's feedback. And this is the big difference between process and outcome. When you focus on outcome, what's the feedback? It's like, well, we tried to make people equal. We miserably failed. And again, to be very concrete, the war on terror, the war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on poverty. Billions of dollars were spent millions of people were killed and the outcomes are totally uh, have not been achieved in any way and so what Sol observes and that, that's an outcome-based philosophy oh look we're going to go to war on this now and, and like we need people to have this socioeconomic distribution well what's the feedback nothing the feedback is actually the only feedback central planners get are oh it didn't work try again yeah and they have the audacity and we saw fdr say that last time is what this country needs now is action we're just gonna keep trying things until something works and they didn't even have that they weren't even they were totally immune to evidence so the big distinction here between process-based thinking and outcome-based thinking is that process-based, it's not process-based, processes have feedback. Mm. The actors get feedback in a process situation. In an outcome-based situation, which requires a central planner, I mean, you may be lucky like for your email to get across some central planner's desk, but you've already crashed the car at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the outcomes, again, as we said earlier, if the outcome is a quality of outcome, which is actually legitimately being sought by certain central planners, you're never going to achieve that because it's not it's not possible. So I guess the feedback is almost disregarded in that case because no matter what is happening, right, the feedback's always going to say you didn't meet the goal because the goal is unattainable other than, as we said, in the grave, right? If you destroy all of human civilization and kill everybody, well, then we're equal. We all have an equal outcome. We're all dead. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, there, I guess there, there's so much depth to that. Uh, let me see if I can tie that all together. The 
the thing unseen in that conversation is this is the question everyone every human being whether you consider yourself on the left or on the right should ask themselves this question has there ever been an equal distribution of anything in the history of nature logic or culture i shouldn't include logic in that in the history of nature or culture and and soul goes into that he's like oh you know lightning strikes are Kansas has like some of like 80% of the world's tornadoes, right? There are yeah. all these, okay, forget about that. We don't have to say it's not about natural law. When in history have, has anything, either talent or ability or outcome been equally distributed? And the answer is never. Yeah. And now the, the reason the invincible fallacy persists is because, well, people in the past were racist. That's how we had, you know, or they were ignorant. And then and we have more knowledge now. And boy, this is getting worse with chat GPT and AI. And I'm seeing people on Twitter not understanding the economic calculation problem again and say, well, now that we have computers and quantum computers, can't we count? No, because you don't have, it's garbage in, garbage out. You don't have enough information in the first place. And it's physically not possible, this is Mises' argument, to actually, to actually make that calculation. So again, the frame we should, we should be inserting into the conversation is, well, okay, you're saying, okay, here's a very direct way, a very empirical way of saying it, is that you're saying that this outcome should be equal. Show me one example in history when that was never when that was ever achieved, and they will not have an answer for you because there isn't one. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of back pressure we have to create on bad political ideas. And in fact, uh, what exactly what you will hear from those people? I can predict those arguments right now. History is discriminatory. History is written by the winners. I mean, so and we have to be prepared for those arguments. But again, Sol is saying put a bigger frame, draw a bigger box around the discussion that's being had. And I, and I want to use that. Actually, I want to let you jump in, but I want to talk about how different languages have stored different amounts of knowledge. Uh, no, l- let's here. go there. Let's go to language because I have an excerpt I want to read, but I'll let you. Oh, why don't you start? Okay. okay. Start with, uh, go ahead. So I'm, I'm out on here on page 194. Uh, this might be jumping the gun a little bit, but let's see. Soul writes, in an era of group identity politics, various group spokesmen, activists, or quote-unquote leaders may be preoccupied with languages as badges of cultural identity, but cultures exist to serve human beings. Human beings do not exist to preserve cultures or to preserve a socially isolated constituency for the benefit of quote-unquote leaders. Why create or perpetrate cultural handicaps for minority youngsters in today's America that were inescapable handicaps for minority youngsters in many other countries in earlier times with fewer and narrower options? And what he's, again, I may have jumped the gun a little bit here, but he's saying, he was referring to uh, this idea of, of a certain lingu- linguistic scholar that was trying to justify the use of black English in schools. So rather than using proper English, he wanted to introduce this language that was uh, curated for, I don't know, like local black slang or something to that effect. And Soul's basically saying like, you're, you're handicap, you're handicapping them, right? It, it's, yes. It's, th- this is a protocol that's used for, for, individual in an exchange of ideas and whatnot and if you try to again just like changing the rules if you compromise the protocol you're just going to hurt the players you're not going to you're not going to improve the game at all yeah trigger warning sensitive subject but we're going to make it scholarly uh so here's the thing that soul talks about in this section is that different languages have stored vastly different amounts of knowledge what does that mean language is a network effect Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is a classic example of a COBRA law, which we're going to talk about here, a proposed COBRA law. What is a COBRA law? Again, you know, going back to the British government when the British were in India, 
There's too many Cobras around. I know what we'll do. Let's actually give a bounty for people bring Cobras in. What actually happened? People bred Cobras because people don't respond to laws. They respond to incentives. That's right. So what is the actual incentive structure created here? So first of all, people can speak any way they want. I, that, it makes no difference to me. Uh, language has no color. But the brilliant question which Sol asks is like, okay, you want to preserve this language? You want to teach Black English in schools? Where are the great works of science, technology, engineering, and medicine in Black English? They don't exist. Right. And your Cobra law is actually dooming people to stay within their network. Okay. And then being the scholar, this has nothing to do with race. This has to do with human dynamics. He gives examples of uh, the Czechs needing to learn German, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the mid to late 1800s. The Czechs needed to learn German in order to lift themselves out of poverty. Why? Because the great works, the great STEM works, the great science works were in German. That's just an accident of history. Mm -hmm. And by telling people you cannot learn a certain language or you should continue to speak your insular language or your, your own idiolect, you're isolating them from progress. Right. And then he gives multiple examples here. Uh, let's see. So uh, one was, uh, if you were a Czech child in the Habsburg Empire, you could not be taught in your own language beyond, beyond the elementary school level until 1848. And therefore, this is a great example of how, so in other words, you could have had a genius IQ. But if you were unfortunately born in Czechoslovakia and didn't speak German, you were unable to lift yourself out of poverty. And this is this great dance of there are multiple prerequisites for success. Uh, success. Another example, which which uh, Solo uses in this book, is that discrimination imposes costs on the discriminator. Part of the reason, thank God, the Nazis didn't win the war is because they forced Jewish scientists out of Germany. And they probably would have gotten, thank God, they probably would have gotten the bomb much sooner. And the entire rise of the Jewish people and the Jewish people receiving a disproportionate number of Nobel Prizes is due to the fact that they already had certain prerequisites for success, like high IQ, but didn't have access to free markets in places like America or didn't have access to their own land. Uh -huh. And then they, you know, kind of suddenly vaulted uh, into prominence. Uh, so it was John McWhorter, by the way, is the linguistic scholar, if, if anybody wants to, to look up that work. I'm trying to find uh, one more example. Yes. Okay. Now, so. People will say, you know, why do people have to learn English? And guess what? The Asian societies, let's say Korean or Japanese, a Japanese-owned multinational company has mm -hmm. decreed that English will be the sole language of the enterprise wherever the company's branches are located around the world. Is it because they love Anglo-Saxons? because they love Anglo-Saxon culture? No. English is the lingua franca of international commerce. Good and enough. if things change and Chinese becomes the international lingua franca, we're all going to have to adapt. Right. And this is the great thing and a point that we can't make enough times during this series. The thing that central planners are most afraid of, disparity, is the thing that drives mobility. Those are the same thing because if we have economic disparity between individuals, you as an individual can be unequal to yourself. Drop the mic. That is right. the point. And that's what Sol says. Is like You're not equal right. to yourself on different days, whether you've eaten, whether right. you slept. And that's a great thing. The fact that one person, based on their, uh, based on the process they participate in, based on the value they create, based on their productivity, mm -hmm. the fact that one person can be more productive than another is great and is to be celebrated because it means that anybody can improve their productivity and change their lot in life and had create socioeconomic mobility. And this very thing that they claim to be afraid of, you know, that hey, there's a fixed strata of people. Please look at the statistics, folks. The, the topper 10%, upper 1% are constantly changing year over year over year. And that means anybody can do it. So the thing that just crushes me in all this is the people who are crying for equality are recommending are recommending outcome-based thinking, which is going to destroy the only processes mm -hmm. we've ever had 
that cause the advancement of individuals. Wonderfully said. Uh, to reiterate the mic drop moment, socioeconomic mobility, right? This is up and down economic or social hierarchies presupposes that one can be unequal to oneself across time, right? You have to have unequal outcomes in order to have mobility. Um, I, I don't know how much more simpler, simply you can say it, right? You just, it's just not, not within the realm of possibility to have equal outcomes and still have any possibility of upward movement, whether that's socially or economically. Uh, and this, this calls to mind our much earlier discussion of, you know, the 1%, people are often demonizing the 1%, but that belies the reality that that 1% cohort, you know, the, presumably the richest 1% of people, either in income or net assets, is constantly changing, right? It's not the same cohort. People are cycling in and cycling out. Um, and so that that's a, again, a consequence of, of socioeconomic mobility, which is a consequence of unequal outcomes. So, and then the, just on the English thing, like English, you know, I think it was Japanese choosing to use English as the lingua, as, as the lingua franca for their company, I believe was that case, was an acknowledgement that English had become the lingua franca of commerce, right? So their choice to participate in the network effect of English was to embrace the economic advantages that it offered them. It doesn't mean, it has nothing to do with, you know, English is a better language or whatever. It's just, it's, exactly. it's a reality of the world. And it's like you either participate in the network and benefit or exclude yourself from the network and incur detriment. So it's, it's a very practical trade-off, right? You're just choosing what is best for you as, as an organization in this case. So yeah, where I think the counterexample he gives is that when people look at language as more of like a cultural symbolism, right? That if you're using English, I guess you're justifying the Anglo-Saxon of many levels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and, and, you know, that becomes a whole interesting discussion, which is treated in black rednecks and, and what is it? Yeah. Black rednecks and black, black rednecks and white, and white liberals, I believe it is, is Sol's other book. Cause he makes the point that it, it's solely the structure. The end of slavery is solely due to Western society as the United States and Britain that championed that. Mm-hmm. And it was accepted around the world until those two nations put down, uh, their foot, both militarily and from an economic perspective. And that's what actually caused the end of it. So to even associate the uh, Anglo culture, which has nothing to do with race, hello, America's a melting pot, mm-hmm. to even associate the Anglo culture with with racism is contrary to history itself. And again, ever the penetrating thinker, Sol makes a bunch of great points here. He says, progress is no more automatic than equality, whether for races, nations, or other social groupings. Watch this. We cannot argue as if good things happen automatically and bad things are somebody's fault. Mm. Right. And, and here's the example. So several severe isolation has left some people centuries or even millennia behind others, whether those, whether these were Caucasians of the Canary Islands living at a stone age level during the middle ages or black Australian Aborigines still living as hunter gatherers in the 8th century. And we've talked about this example. Remember it was said, no Scottish Lord could write their own name. And then they produce Hume and, 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 Mm. right. And then we talk about the Chinese being far ahead of Europe, but then closing their borders and going down. What is this? This is the story of inequality. It is the story of history. It means any nation can rise, any individual can rise. And we need to embrace that process. And this is a very important uh, 
it's kind of like mimicry that that Hayek talks about in the market discovery process. And what he says is that the way the market proceeds is by looking around and individuals seeing who is succeeding and then mimicking that strategy long before any central planner can ever figure it out. And I want to talk directly about Bitcoin. And is it WorldCoin? Is this just this other coin that you have to get retina scanned for? And like you get your WorldCoin allegation. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a centrally planned okay. alternative to so, Bitcoin. Yeah. Thank you. And I want to destroy that whole idea. And the, okay, so people that came along from, oh, Bitcoin is controlled by whales. We don't like this. Let's have a different distribution of coins. I know. Let's start our own coin. Let's you know decide we want how things we're we're going to come along the century plan how things are distributed. Now watch this. There is no way to have an equal outcome as the starting condition and also have market discovery. What does that mean? It means that if the people would bet on Bitcoin early, they also would have failed, and the government would have tried would wouldn't have tried to help them. So the discovery process requires that individuals can take risk. If individuals can take risk to be ahead of the curve, that means that the outcome cannot be predicted. And guess what? That means the distribution is going to be uneven every single time because <laughs> information is not evenly distributed. And so there's no such thing as a fair starting point. There's the information that we all have. The, ac the actors then take the information that they have and act on that. And if you were smart enough, who knows how this is going to play out? Maybe, maybe we'll be staying or like, you know, who knows how any of this is going to play out? But right. if you don't reward the people who took the risk of, I'm going to buy Bitcoin at $500 or a dollar, whatever your price was, 10,000 is a good price at this point. If, if you don't reward those people, you will never have a discovery process in the market because you come in and say arbitrarily, no, 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 my idea of just is better. I'm going to take the money for the people who are smart enough to know that hard money is better than soft money and just give this, and this is exactly what WorldCoin is trying to do. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy on Twitter like being like, oh, like I just don't love the distribution of Bitcoin. And this is exactly the fallacy like that all the whales have it and mm -hmm. extra, like sailors got a lot of Bitcoin. He may become the, you know, if anything plays out, he may become the richest human yeah. in history. But guess what? He also could have lost his shirt and government center learners weren't going to come in and help him. Mm -hmm. And he, he took the risk of being the signal for the rest of the market. And what I'm trying to say, I hope this point is coming across, is that we cannot have discovery of new and great things. We cannot have progress unless the distribution is unequal because the unequal equal distribution reflects the fact that people had different information. And it's the only way that the process of a fair society can reward the people who are smarter or better at surviving than others. Right. Yeah, no, it's... it's wonderfully said and then the example of sailor is good actually because he's not an early adopter right he starts buying bitcoin in 2020 um it's not really i mean an early adopter maybe in the grand scheme of things but as far as recently he's not like an early well or any of that and it's again back to just symmetry of risk and reward you're betting on you're, you're betting that you're studying the past and you're saying this is how people have responded to an asset with these properties historically, right? And I'm going to bet that people will do something similar going into the future. You could be wrong, right? Your entire study of history could be wrong. You could put your economic energy into that asset. And if you're wrong, well, then the market will, will punish you, right? You'll lose purchasing power. You'll lose wealth. But if you're right, then you reap the rewards. So yes. And there's no way to travel backwards in time and then say, oh, you got lucky. No, I took a risk. 
you can't travel backwards yes. and say, oh, you got lucky. I'm going to take your Bitcoin and give it to everybody else. This is such an absurd idea, but it that's is right. exactly the idea of equal outcomes. Yes. No, and that's great. And and that process is so important because now the people that bet properly or that bet correctly, let's say, they become figures or models that other people imitate, right? This is the same thing in business. If you introduce uh, a superior good or service, well, then you get you you induce competitive entry into the marketplace, right? Like, um, I'm trying to think of an example where, like, I guess Bezos maybe would be an example where he introduced something that's fundamentally new, and then all of a sudden you've got Walmart online, right, trying to compete with Bezos and these other other distribution internet right. distribution companies. We that's that's fundamental to human interaction is that we're we're always imitating one another. Uh, right. There's actually there's a great book on this called. And it probably goes deeper than this, but the only one I've read is Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World by Gerard. And he talks about mimesis being like this fundamental element of all human interaction. Mimesis is where we get words like imitate, mime, mimic, etc. And the argument is that all human interactions are imitative. That we're right now, you and I are like mirroring one another to some extent. We're kind of like mirror neurons. And then over a lifetime, my personality becomes an amalgam of all the people I've interacted with over time. You know, this is how kids learn. You know, you watch your parents, what they do, and you kind of emulate them. So that is also key to this market discovery process. It's like once you figure out a good solution or a good a thing that works, you want people to imitate that, right? So it works for other people, more people in more places. And that is like the, the progress of the, the economic process. Uh, you, I want to destroy Worldcoin once and for all with that. And say you probably heard the saying that you know you could take all the money away today, and you know, within some number a year or ten years, the same billionaires who are billionaires today, uh, the same people would be rich, right? And Sol proves this. Okay, and what he shows, he's like the actual thing that people have that makes them wealthy is human capital. It's mm -hmm. in here and in here. Right? It's in the heart. And the proof of that is when people become diaspora. And so, and this happens throughout history. Again, not just the the downtrodden classes are are the ones that um, I guess receive the brunt. But there are cases, um, nations like Singapore, where there were, were racial or Malaysia, where there are racial tensions, and then you know a successful class was gone to war against, and they were ousted, and they then settled in their new nations and became rich again mm -hmm. because it's the human capital. And so what the, what this has to do with Worldcoin is I can let's just say everybody has a million Worldcoin. I don't know what their supply issuance rate is. Very soon, that outcome is going to be unequal because it has nothing to do with the starting capital. People aren't depraved because they're deprived. And it's not even that the people who are poor are immoral, right? It has nothing to do with the starting capital. It has to do with what human capital they have or don't have. And the market process rewards productivity, whereas things like WorldCoin try to try to reward completely amorphous concepts like merit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's wonderfully said. It's Human capital is... It's the knowledge and the courage, right? The knowledge of the mind and the courage of the heart to go out and do things, to take risk. Um, and the weird things you studied as like, okay, this is a really silly example, but it's very apropos. If you're super into text messaging and like, maybe you're really good at prompt engineering now, I don't know. It's like the stupid, the idiosyncratic things that you chose to do, which no central planner could tell you. A central planner can only look at past statistics and be like, oh, I noticed people who studied medicine did really well. Well, then they try to make everyone a doctor. And what happens? The advantage of being a doctor disappears completely, like, right. or the quality bar of being a doctor goes down. I mean, there are so many, like, and, and that's a great way to distinguish skin in the game and process from uh, outcome based, right? I don't ever want to, 
I don't think anybody wants to get into a plane and be like, and the pilot be like, Hey, I'm a diversity hire. Like, Oh shit. <laughs> right. Like right. that's not, I, I'm right. not interested. Like right. oh, you're the most capable pilot. Great. Yeah. And you know, that's it. And should we have objective criteria to develop to to develop pilots that have nothing to do and to select pods that have nothing to do with race or religion? Mm-hmm. But that's the real, you know. And life is uh, uh, an oh no moment, right? And we, we are all men and women on the spot, and we have to have the authority to make decisions about ourselves, or we are uh, our decisions are being overrided by someone else's, and we're trying to drive a car over email. To go mm-hmm. back to that example. Yeah, no, the the airline pilot's a good example because they are unavoidably attached to the consequences of their actions, right? If you're a bad pilot, well, then you end up dead, right, somewhere. Um, But other instances of professionals, you know, making decisions that can affect your lives that they don't incur the consequences, those exist everywhere, right? Like you could have Maybe like a diversity hire brain surgeon, right? You don't want someone that's a brain surgeon just because they identify as a whatever they identify as. Like you want someone that's competent, right? That has experience and training and knows what they're doing. Um, And so the idea of someone getting promoted to a position like that based on anything other than proven capability and competence is is really scary. And you could scale that out to any any service provider. Should we go towards process goals versus outcome goals, or is there anything left in language we should talk about? Yeah, let's get there. I'll just inject, interject a, a, a funny anecdote from Taleb, and maybe you remember this one. It says, if you have to choose between two brain surgeons, and they have exactly the same success rate, whatever it is, 99%, 90% doesn't matter. So two, two brain surgeons, they have exactly the same success rate. One one looks like a Hollywood actor, and the other one, you know, looks like a butcher or mm-hmm. he, like mm-hmm. you know it looks and he, and Talib asked the question which one do you choose and uh, he says the the answer is you you choose the the doctor who looks terrible because he had to work much harder to overcome kind of the inherent prejudice of, of human being. and right. so what i'm saying is this information game cuts both ways like so we can use assumptions that people he said like in order to have an evil record he must be the better surgeon because his looks never compensated at any point that's and that's actually proof that he, he has the productivity, right? So it's a, it's really interesting how how all these things uh, play together, and how counterintuitive that is, right? You would you would naturally be disinclined yeah. <laughs> to choose the brain surgeon that looks like a butcher, right? Yeah. But it's probably the better decision. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference twenty twenty three. This three day event will be held May eighteenth through twentieth in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. 
Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Um, okay, so I'm jumping up to page 208, which is a section titled Process Goals versus Outcome Goals. And I think this is quite important. It's a bit of a long excerpt, but it frames um, much of the rest of the discussion in the chapter. Soul writes, people with different visions of the world may not only, may have not only different goals, but also different kinds of goals. Some kinds of goals are process goals, such as free markets or a government of laws and not of men. Other goals are outcome goals, such as eliminating socioeconomic gaps or disparities between individuals or groups. Moreover, different kinds of institutions may be more suited to achieving these different kinds of goals. Even those who seek to promote certain process goals recognize that outcomes are what ultimately matter. But the crucial question is, matter to whom? In a free market, each individual transactor decides what particular outcomes that particular transactor wants and at what cost, whether in money or in toil and sacrifice. Institutional structures that seek to maintain market processes leave individual decisions in the market to the particular individuals transacting directly with, their other, with each other within the framework of that process. By contrast, those who are seeking to have more women employed in Silicon Valley or more minority students admitted to Ivy League colleges are directly pursuing specific outcome goals chosen by third parties to be imposed on others. Whatever the pros and cons of the particular goals, these pros and cons are not left to be weighed by those people directly affected, but by third-party surrogate decision-makers who may claim to assume superior knowledge, compassion, or whatever. So again, it's just like either virtue signaling or... Uh, um, ostensibly holding a moral high ground or doing what's in your best interest. Like we often hear this uh, out of government action and policy, right? It's for our safety or for our protection, something like that, as if we're not smart enough to make decisions that, that are in our own best interest. Um, all as a means or all as a means of justifying the preemption of individual decision. And so it's, you know, the, if you just focus, I guess, what's he, what's he saying here? The process, the process goals, the process goals don't have that, that weakness, whereas the outcome goals do. Yes. And it has to do with the information feedback. So by contrast, I'm going to pick up right where you left off. And I feel like yeah. the, the last sentence you ended with was total mic drop. By contrast, those who are promoting process goals are seeking to have incremental trade-offs. Right? This is the idea. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. Made by individuals directly experiencing both the benefits and the costs of their own decisions. 
This is so good. Those who are promoting outcome goals are seeking to create categorical priorities chosen by third parties and imposed by government compulsion on those who directly experience both the benefits mm. and the costs. What does that mean? More power for some means less freedom for others. He, he goes on. Those who seek to establish priorities to eliminate gaps do not necessarily say that this is to be done at all costs or by all means necessary. But at the very least, the weighing of those costs and benefits is not left in the hands of those who will experience both. More important, the knowledge of all the costs, not only in money terms, but in human terms as well, cannot possibly be known as well to distant surrogates as to the people who directly bear those costs. That could come straight, those paragraphs could come straight from Mises or straight from Hayek. Yeah. Wow. Skin in the game, right? Once again, if you want to have any properly functioning system, there has to be this balance of incentives and disincentives, right? Or you could say symmetry of risk and reward. And to to whatever extent that we break that symmetry, the system does not function properly for individuals. And I, I would agree with that. And I would say that this is, again, you know, social justice is the idea that people should be treated unequally so they can be made more equal. It's right. an inherent paradox and it will fall and collapse on itself. Here's the thing which I find startling and Sol goes into this. He's like, okay, you want more women in Silicon Valley. Did you ever stop the, to ask the question, do women want to work in Silicon Valley? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no one's asking like, what if they have different preferences? What if they want to work in Boston? What if they don't want to work at all? I mean, this, the whole thing is so absurd. And the reason it's absurd to me is that they are pretending, central planners are pretending to respect individuals and to respect uh, protected classes. They don't at all. And they never ask those people, like, are, are, are we supposed to tell, and are we supposed to tell youth in the inner cities, like, no, don't be an NBA star. Why do you want that? You should want to be a doctor. What is that? The whole thing is preposterous. And it again comes comes down to the idea, that's it. They, they That's why the invincible fallacy is so invincible, is that it's an untestable vision mm-hmm. of something that should happen that has very little basis in reality. And that's why it's never deflated, because they can always keep saying, well, things should be better. Well, things should be better. We all know that. Uh, and we get into trouble when we believe that the way to make the world better or the way to undo past injustices is by somehow hampering or handicapping individuals in the present, mm. which is always what their their central plans result in. Right. Yeah, there's there's a, an air of this moral camouflage, right, where whatever the policy is, they're saying it's in the best interest of equality or humanity or the greater good or whatever it may be, whereas in fact, it's just a consolidation of power, right? And then there's, um, where else was I going to go with that? I've, I've actually lost my train of thought. Um, I th- I could read actually just another passage here where he further beats this up. Soul writes, and I'm, I'm out on page 211 now. He writes, why should eliminating gaps be the goal when different individuals and groups do not want the same things? or do not have the same priorities or urgencies about these gaps? Why should the gross underrepresentation of Asian Americans in professional basketball be a gap to be closed if Asian Americans do not have nearly as much interest in that sport as black Americans have? Why should the underrepresentation of women in chess clubs or men in nursing be a gap to be closed? The process goal of preventing biased decision-making from arbitrarily closing off opportunities is an understandable goal 
Creating a tableau to match the preconceptions of a vision is something very different. And he goes on to, to write, the people who depict markets as cold, impersonal institutions and their own notions as humane and compassionate have it directly backwards. It is when people make their own economic decisions, taking into account costs that matter to themselves and known only to themselves, that this knowledge becomes part of the trade-offs they choose, whether as consumers or producers. And I'll, I'll finish the highlight here. Much of the difference between those who promote process goals and those who promote outcome goals seems to reflect differences in how they conceive oh, yeah. what knowledge is and whether relevant knowledge is concentrated in a few or widely diffused among the many. Such knowledge includes knowledge of cost. Whatever the amount of socially consequential information that is known to surrogate decision makers, no given decision maker is likely to know more than a small fraction of what is necessary to know in order to make the best decisions for a whole society. And that, again, the use of knowledge in society by Hayek, that's it in a nutshell, right? It's knowledge cannot be concentrated into a few hands in a way that's more useful um, than it being acted upon when it's present and relevant to the individuals that it actually affects. And this is why statists are so enamored to computers is because they finally accepted that, you know, no single brain or no central planning committee with a demonstrable history of very poor decisions, right? Whether you want to look at the military or you want to look at the various organizations that guide the economy or guide education. And what is the reason they're fascinated with computers is that their belief is that, oh, well, now the computers will finally have enough information. And this is, again, where the work of Mises becomes so important, the economic calculation problem becomes so important. And there's an article by Rothbard, it's called The Economic Calculation Debate Revisited. Mm. And this is where he takes Hayek to task for kind of, you know, weakening Mises' argument. Mises' argument isn't that economies the central planners don't have enough information to plan the economy. It's that they can never, ever possibly have the information. They cannot do economic calculation, period, end of story. And so the statist fantasy, this is why the invincible fallacy is so persistent, is because every year we have more knowledge. And then the statists pop up, the authoritarians pop up and say, this time it's different. And you know, you saw this on display with the virus, with the international pandemic. You just, oh, like we have so much information. And now it's like, no, they didn't have very much information. They didn't follow the scientific process at all. Mm -hmm. But they, what they have is more pride because they're sitting on more data. And the whole point, and I want everyone to prepare for this because a lot of arguments are going to be made about how AI can plan some kind of utopia for us, can be objective. Mm -hmm. And I'm here as a computer scientist to say hogwash, BS, not possible. And one of the reasons is dispersed knowledge. There are things in here and things in here that are never going to enter a computer. And the second is this is beyond the can. This goes all the way back to our very first podcast, Order Without Organizations. There are things uh, that a computer simply cannot do that a human can. And that's a whole, and, and I actually want to want to talk about this a little bit. So you get two great quotes here. One is John Stuart Mill and the other is uh, the, one of the editors of the Wall Street Journal. So even if a government were superior in intelligence and knowledge to any single individual in the nation, it must be inferior to all the individuals of the nation taken to get, take together. Mm -hmm. And the really uh, kind of interesting paradox that Sol is exposing here is saying markets aren't cold or impersonal. That's where you personally go and shake hands with somebody. That's where you go to the market. That's where you give up a dollar. That's where you receive the fruit from the nice woman. I mean, th this is the only, this is the way that people voluntarily interact through head and through heart. And now he goes on and say, but 
all those factors influence the innumerable transactions linked through prices across the market. Now, this is the, in general, the market is smarter than the smartest of its individual participants. And what we did in our prior work, which people can go back to, is say that the market is smarter than any computer ever could be. And this is the fundamental, this is the fundamental property of complex systems. They cannot be captured by any algorithm or any system. And let's just make some very, very simple physical and information theoretic constraints. Your brain is smaller than the universe. By definition, there are way more atoms in the universe than there are in your brain. No matter what the computer is, I don't care if it's a quantum computer, I don't mm. care if it's chat GPT-20, doesn't matter. It That is always going to be a simulation of reality and mm. not the thing in itself. And this is the one thing that conservatives appreciate that status and authoritarians don't, is that we will never be able to model a complex system. We will never be able to predict the arc of a complex system all we can do is put fair processes in place. There's no such thing as fair outcomes. There's no such thing as equal outcomes. There never has been in the system of society. Whereas, and, and so let's see if we can boil those down. The fatal conceit was something like, um, wherever there's, there is chaos, we must impose order. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now watch the invincible fallacy. Wherever there's order that we don't like, we must impose, we must, un, we must unstructure it. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, there's this constant recipe for interference in the sadist mindset because the sadist believes, ah, we finally have more information. And this is where the argument of principle, the argument of substance comes down to. Do you fundamentally believe that someone who is not you has more information to run your own life? Yes or no? And I think what you'll find startlingly is that people who are on the sadist side of things or the command or authoritarian side of things believe that most people are dumb. And that people who are below average should be ruled over by some kind of intelligentsia. And the irony is, is that this very Marxist thought process creates kind of a new division. Like it used to be the proletariat and the bourgeois, but the actual socialist and Satanist fantasy is like, no, 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 the people who know. Well, this is fallacy has been exploded at the national levels multiple times. Like I'm not saying he's not a very smart individual. I'm also saying, I'm not saying that he doesn't have a really hard job. In fact, I would say that, you know, Fauci has his task was tasked with like trying to predict an equation with 300 million variables, at least so probably 300 trillion, probably much more than that. He's not going to succeed at that task. Right. Uh, but to pretend that somehow like governments are so intelligent that they can substitute for the man on the spot it, it is preposterous. And I've tried to, I guess what I'm trying to do is head off at the past to future arguments where people are going to show up very well-intentioned people. And there's a guy named Paul Cockshot, who's a Marxist. And he is very much, you know, again, like, how we'll finally have computers plan the future. No, that sounds like a dystopian nightmare to me. And would you run with that? I just want to get ahead of this idea that people are going to say, we finally have enough knowledge, let's plan society. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing that jumped out at me is you're describing the brain, right? The brain is less than the cosmos by definition. I would take it a step further and say the brain really is evolved to map onto this cosmos, right? Not not the deep space necessarily, but at least it allows us to map the time and space relevant to human action. And that map can never be the territory, right? As that famous quote says, the map is not the territory. So it's always by definition l- limited, right? It's limited um, and it's, it does not have as much detail or as many contours as the territory itself. If the brain ever did, if a map ever contained as much detail as the territory itself, well, then it's no longer a map, right? It's now the territory. So the map can never be the territory. And I'm struck here. Like, I'm curious, 
now as, as we talk about this and think about it more, is it possible that this entire notion of central planning is like a vestige of our tribal past? I mean, so human hierarchies are necessary, right? We need to organize ourselves into groups to accomplish greater results with less efforts to increase productivity, et cetera. But it seems like there's this risk of mistaking like the guy at the top of the hierarchy uh, as having some kind of absolute knowledge or becoming some, something that's superhuman. Like when people, like people talking about, like we just described with Fauci, right? He was at the top of that hierarchy. Like how are we going to navigate this pandemic situation? Yeah, it's equivalent to him trying to solve a, an equation with 300 trillion or million variables, something impossible. It's an impossible task yeah. for a human to do. Are, is Maybe we're in, maybe central planning is some type of transitional law or fallacy that we think we can take this old human hierarchical model and, you know, put the, put the right people at the top of the hierarchy such that we all benefit, like they have some kind of totalizing knowledge. Whereas as we get into a deeper reverence for complex systems, we'll understand that it's the individual participants that need to be maximally empowered, right? Much more like a free market rather than some top-down authority. Um, so I'm kind of just like forming this idea as we're going here, but it seems like there's something humans really want to like blame someone or look to someone to solve the problem. But the reality is that it's, in, you really need to maximally empower individuals to deal with the circumstances specific to their time and place. And that actually creates the best collective outcome rather than trying to empower a few, one individual or a few individuals at the top to tell us all what to do. Yeah, there's a lot there. I guess the, the, the first thing, it's very easy uh, for me to listen to myself and be like, wow, this guy's really did a lot. And, and what I realize is that it's not about leftism versus rightism or statism versus libertarianism. It's about diagonalism. And I, and I kind of want to explain that. So first of all, let me answer your question about evolution. Absolutely. The, the concepts of the state, the state is very much a god for people who don't have a god. Mm. It, it, is, it is very much a parent. And so I think a lot of the evolutionary vestiges, I think even the dichotomy between left and right, you know, whatever it's going to be, some people are left brain dominant, right brain dominant, I don't know. Or, or some people are male, some people are female. Like, I don't think it's any mistake that we see twos, tons of twos in natures, and that, you know, also a bicameral political system is the most likely to, to evolve. And he, this even goes back to the fossil record. It, the trilobites, these, these little marine creatures. So it's crazy how scientists find these things out. But what they found out is that there was roughly a 60-40 split between uh, trilobites that had dined from a bite on the right side versus the left side. And it's because they had preferences for which way to turn when the predators were coming after them. Huh. And so Sol explains this. He says the fundamental conservative assumption is that man is flawed from day one. The fundamental uh, uh, statist assumption is that man is perfect and his institutions are flawed. Mm. And that's why the Rousseauian mm. quote is like, you know, man is born free, but everywhere else. Exactly. And so, and the first one is much more a belief in complex systems. It's like, yeah, like I'm flawed means I'm going to have incomplete information. The second one is like, no, 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 no. We're so smart that we can redesign the institutions to have specific outcomes, right? So I do think a lot of these fundamental differences are are based in evolution. And what I wanted to say, and I think this is really important because the ideas that we're discussing in this podcast are only going to have wings and are only going to affect society if a broad number of people can listen to them and understand them. Here's what I want to say. This is the idea of diagonalism. 
at the family level, I am the biggest socialist ever. Like my shirt is your shirt, have my food. Like, you know, and that is perfectly rational. This is what sadists don't understand is that the speed with which information and skin in the game can travel in the size of family cannot be matched by uh, the speed with which information travels at, at, at uh, the size of a nation. And Sol goes into that statistic in this book. He's like, look, a lot of people point to Scandinavian countries and say like, oh, this is a great example of where socialism works really work, works really well. Guess what? It used to work when they were culturally homogenous. Mm-hmm. Now, something like 50, the, the average Swede, like something like 7% of them used to use the, the welfare system. This is like around 1974. Now, 40% of immigrants are using the welfare system. There's a categorical change here. And the only cases, cases, socialism can work in close-knit, heterogeneous, situa- homogeneous situations like the family. But mm-hmm. at the state level, and this is exactly, Robert, what we're going, is that Bitcoin distributed systems are giving us a new muscle, a new thinking muscle. Mm-hmm. So the only way to solve things isn't to socially distribute and centrally plan, although mothers and fathers have to do that kind of stuff all the time. And God bless them. Like, you know, if you don't essentially plan your child's lunch and you know when they're going to sleep and whether you're probably a bad parent right mm-hmm. so and as it's really important i'm sorry i'm saying this so late in in the podcast i'm sorry i'm saying this so late in the series but it has nothing to do with socialism is bad and libertarian is good it's libertarianism is good it's just that at the scale of a nation at the scale of multiple nations you need individuals to be empowered it's very ironic and at the scale of the family you need a more collectivist and socialist thinking And so I think what this comes down to is Bitcoin is showing humanity. It's the first like wide scale distributed emergent system that everybody had to kind of look at and and is operating in the clear, so to speak, right? There are Mm -hmm. these unseen processes that they have invisible hands and markets coordinating and pencils being created when no individual knows how to create a pencil have always been going on. And, you know, somebody in Africa is benefiting or being harmed by the economic decisions that I make here in America. Prices have this ability to transmit information at great distance. And uh, I guess what I want to say in all of this is we're not coming out here saying, and Sol isn't saying that, you know, socialism is bad or selflessness is bad or compassion is bad. He's saying it doesn't scale at the scale. It doesn't function at the scale of nations where there there's heterogene, heterogeneity, uh-huh. uh, where there's differences of opinion, where there's no skin in the game. Uh-huh. And so I think that's the much more subtle argument we should be making to people is that, you know, at least that's the way I look at myself is like, well, I'm, I'm diagonal. Like, you know, I'm going right. to, I'm not saying this is good. I'm, I'm exposing how an ego works. I'm going to give certain preferences to myself as an individual. I'm going to give certain preferences to my family. But then at the level, I don't want a bureaucrat in Washington telling me, you know, how to drive my car over email. Mm-hmm. And that is also how we get the best global outcomes. But yeah, I wonder if you want to run with that. Like, this isn't about, oh, don't be a statist. Like, that's literally not the point of any of us. Yeah. The point of this whole book is think bigger, see a broader frame, understand the circumstances in which socialism works, a homogeneous Sweden, uh, circumstances in which it doesn't, a heterogeneous Sweden with people from different cultures, it doesn't matter their race. I'll let you run with that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And again, it's acknowledging the, there's no final solution, right? Like circumstances and scale matter. And you're acknowledging the complexity of it, right? That Yeah, sure, we need, it's scale variant, right? At the, at the nation state level, we need individuals maximally empowered. But at the family level, it's almost communist, right? There's not really any private property inside your family. And we love it. Like, let's go. Like, and that's the way it should be. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. communal. And and I think too, so there's, again, we're acknowledging the complexity and the, the variation of, of this 
of these different ideologies that there's not one size fits all. It's it's all contextual, circumstantial um, scale variant. But statists seem also to prey on that. You know, when you hear terms like they almost represent the state as a family, right? When you talk about yeah. the fatherland or the motherland or whatever it may be, they're preying on that 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 communal circuitry we all have that we understand socialism or communism really works in a, a family unit. And they're saying, well, that, you know, I'm Stalin. I am the father of this whole big family. And that is obviously a lie, right? You can't have a family dynamic among multi tens or hundreds of millions of people. And I would maybe take even a step further and just say, okay, socialism slash communism works at the family level. I don't think it scales far beyond that. Like even in a small community, you still need property rights to get that thing to function properly over time. You could make, you know, and it's not, there's gradations, right, between the size of the community and how much capitalism you need versus socialism. Maybe in a super small community, you can get away with that in a very high trust environment. But definitely once you get beyond 150 people, right, the Dunbar number, you need some property rights. Like it has, you have to have it. There's no, there's no other way. You can't know more than 150 people in a high trust environment. So you have to have some rules and protocols through which to interact. Even at the fit, I think you need property rights at the scale of two people. And it isn't that you have pure socialism or pure communism in the family. Anybody who has kids will tell you like, imagine uh, both your kids, you know, one kid goes out and cleans his room completely. The other one just picks up a sock. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now go and tell your two kids, hey, uh, welcome to socialism. You're both going to get right. $5 or whatever. <laughs> like, and see, I mean, that you're going to cause yeah. chaos because there is a fundamental sense of justice and productivity as opposed to outcome, right? Here is very clear. So I totally agree. And I think, you know, I think once you have two people, you need some, some kind of private property. So then, mm-hmm. well, we know because that's measurable and we know where one ends and the other begins. I, uh, I wanted to, to jump into. I guess thoughts of a reigning society, and, and you brought up Louis the Fourteenth earlier, and I, there's he's got some, Thol's got some zingers in here, and I'm wondering uh, if you want to start that, kick that off, or if I should. Uh, yeah, you go ahead, go ahead and kick that off, please. There's a couple pieces there, so let's see. Wow, this is really deep. Uh, again, I'll, I'll read from Soul and then I'll dissect. In other words, because no individual was, this is the argument that the authoritarians make. Because no individual was solely responsible for that individual's benefits, therefore politicians, bureaucrats, and judges, that is the government, Rawls, society, which can arrange things, are to preempt decisions and redistribute benefits, presumably in a more moral way. And I want to stop there. The invincible fallacy is wherever there were disparate outcomes, it must be the result of discrimination. And this is a corollary. And it's kind of like, if you didn't make it, I, the government, can take it. Uh-huh. And they prey on this idea that no individual is an island. And they, they basically say that, now let's go on to that, but no burden of proof, this is from Seoul, of either superior morality or superior efficiency in government is required for this preemption. So government wants to preempt the decision-making capacity of the individuals. It wants to use eminent domain and other clauses to preempt the property rights of individuals. The brazen non sequitur that, quote, if you didn't build that, it is something the government is justified in taking over is a fitting companion to the invincible fallacy that people tend to have comparable outcomes in the absence of biased treatment. Mm. So this is in the, what Sol is, is showing these little tight pieces of mislogic that are used to, to seize power. 
if you didn't if you didn't make it, we can take it. Absolutely not. That's not how productivity works. Uh, it's not productivity is not a zero sum game. Um, and I'm going to end with one thing which you mentioned earlier. So this from Louis the Fourteenth family said the dust and what? Okay, the dust and what? Today's income redistributionists say social justice or the common good. So I will introduce. They're saying so the dust and what? The state is me. Mm-hmm. I am the state, right? The, the social justice isn't far from that. It's saying l'état, they, uh, the, the state is them. So mm. can you see that, that sleight of hand? It's basically saying that because in my estimation, and it is in the estimation of the politician who's making the statement, because in my arbitrary judgment, these people were disparaged or are, are in this position because of injustice, they are now the state. And because of that, I have the power to dictate how things will be distributed. Mm. And this goes all the way back to a few chapters. The whole idea of redistributing income is fallacious because it was never distributed in the first place. It was earned. Mm. So I don't know. I'll let you run from from the dust and what and see if there's anything. I am the state. See if you want to do anything with that. Well, I I just this is kind of a speculation, I guess, on my part. But I I'm a big proponent or believer in fractals. You know, I think this idea of structures being self-similar at multiple scales a common example like the pebble is the boulder is the mountain they're the same structural design just at different scales and so when i i look at you know society you might say that what the cell is to the individual human organism the individual human organism is to the collective society whatever it may be and so as as such i've i the state you know Without getting into decomposing the state versus government, I think there are some differences there, but the state seems to be this emergent phenomenon of humans. And I've speculated, I guess, to some extent that the state is a macrocosm of the ego and the ego, individual ego, is a microcosm of the state. It's kind of like this little fiction we tell ourselves that we're actually separate from ourselves, separate from one another and separate from the world. And it's usually to justify, you know, some type of coercive action, right? Either you've been victimized or taken advantage of, so you're due some revenge or retribution, um, or, you know, some a, a useful fiction that helps you set up an us versus them dichotomy. And so, this thing where we talk about the state, I. I it's dangerous to think of it as something out there, I guess is my point. Like it's something that lives mm. in humans that we, mm. it's very easy if you've looked at your own life with any serious degree of um, just just looked at your life with a serious eye, I'm sure you've seen moments that you've been egoic, right? Or that you acted out of ego rather than out of love or compassion or truth, something like that. And so it's not it's not as much as we beat up the state and we sit here and maybe we're putting ourselves on a pedestal as if we are the enlightened libertarian philosophers saying, Oh, we need to transcend statism and all that. I think it's something that kind of lives in all of us. And the real enlightenment process is maybe arming yourself with that knowledge and keeping that egoic tendency in check. Uh, So I, I don't know. That's kind of a, a philosophical waxing, but it's just something I've no. about lately. 
it was really is really deep and so so this is extraordinarily important too and it has to do with locus of control if the state is always this external thing we have very little control on it yeah. and i frankly feel in this political environment that uh people feel totally disempowered because there's so much information there's so many actions you could take there's so many big problems it's very clear where it's very unclear where the next action should be and that reminded me i've got one of steve jobs last emails here which i just ran into on twitter and i want to read it mm. in a second because it's very apropos of all of this but I think what I said earlier was untrue. What I said was Bitcoin, well, I do think Bitcoin is the first distributed, self-coordinating, the network is the computer type of system mm -hmm. that is on full display because it's an engineered system. Mm -hmm. But the one that we had before that, which is the basis of our interactions, the human body. And mm -hmm. what does he mean to say? The market is not a place or a thing. It is a process actuated by the different individuals cooperating under the division of labor. And then I thought, like your red blood cells aren't like, oh no, like I can't be a brain cell. Like mm -hmm. what's wrong with me? Right. And so <laughs> you are a distributed organism and you don't have to compute. It's consciousness all the way down. You, you don't have to compute or be like, oh man, how do I move my leg? Right. And anybody who's had a traumatic brain injury or something, mm -hmm. and that, that actually can become very difficult. But we are communities or colonies of cells. And there's some really ironic things in here. And I think one is that the narrative around connectedness and interlinkedness has been hijacked by people who call everything they don't like capitalism and then proceed to reason that capitalism is bad. Mm. And what I'm trying to say is that capitalism and trade is the actual philosophy of interlinkedness and communality. And this is the crazy mm. thing is that what Hayek was describing in the extended order is the super organism that functions because people are free to make decisions for themselves. And by the way, it's not just like you have individuals in the state and there's nothing in between. There's uh, there's non-governmental organizations, there's common pooled resources, and we're going to build bigger and bigger structures. The thing that matters is not that, hey, I'm an individual, I only care about myself. It's that you can drive that through voluntary organization. And remember, we talked about in previous episodes, this this iPencil article, which is like, mm -hmm. hey, no one in the world knows how to make a pencil. And like, you need the lacquer, you need the ferrule, you need the rubber. And there's no one person knows how to make it. But for a few cents, it all comes together. And this is the magic price coordination. And this is too perfect, Robert. And I hope it'll give us a good, a good kind of launching point. So this is, I hope this is not apocryphal, but I've seen this email several times. September 2nd, 20, 000, uh, 2010, before Steve died. It's crazy. I grow little of the food I eat and of the little I do grow, I do not breed or perfect the seeds. I do not make any of my own clothing. I speak a language I did not invent or refine. I did not discover the mathematics I use. I am protected by freedoms and laws I did not conceive of or legislate and do not enforce or adjudicate. I am moved by music I did not create myself. When I needed medical attention, I was helpless to help myself survive. I did not invent the transistor, the microprocessor, object-oriented programming, or most of the technology I work with. I love and admire my species, living and dead, and am totally dependent on them for my life and well-being. Wow beautiful one of the biggest capitalists in the world just wrote one of the most beautiful poems to how connected and interlinked we are that i've ever read yeah and isn't it i guess what i'm struck by and you know maybe we should let steve have the last word what i'm struck by is how is it that the political discourse has been hijacked to make capitalism the villain which is what respects and creates that extended order right and socialism which which tries to destroy differences at the end of the day and is a regressive philosophy 
how is that supposed to be the philosophy of brotherhood? Man, that is beautiful, uh, beautiful summation of the division of labor that we all depend on, right, across space and time. Um, and I think you're right. We should let Steve have the last word. I think that's a good place to end it. Um, Anish, this is, I have to thank you again, introducing me to this book. It's fantastic. Uh, I look forward to reading more Thomas Sowell's work. And um, yeah, hopefully these ideas can permeate more minds because it seems to undo a lot of the nonsense in the world in a very matter-of-fact way. Um, okay, where where can people find you on the internet, good sir? Uh, I'm A-K-A-R-V-E on Twitter and A-K-A-R-V-E.com is where I write my articles. A-Card. Awesome. Anish, thank you again. Thanks, Art.